In December of 1988, astronaut Mike Mullane and his team were aboard the American space shuttle Atlantis. While they floated in space, NASA Mission Control alerted him to some damage on the outside of the spacecraft. Mullane used the spacecraft's robotic arm, which had a camera on its tip, to get a closer look. He maneuvered it around the Atlantis and noticed that about 700 of its heat-shielding tiles were destroyed, and one was missing entirely. It may sound like a small detail, but harm like this could cause the shuttle to burn up upon re-entry to Earth, killing them all. Mullane reported the damage to Mission Control and sent images to prove it. But there was just one problem. The photos were low quality, grainy, and heavily encrypted. To Mullane's shock, NASA engineers said the damage was, quote, not a problem. And no matter how much he and his crew begged for help, Mission Control downplayed the issue. There was no one else they could turn to because this wasn't an ordinary space flight. It was a secret mission on behalf of the military. No one else knew they were in space. Meaning, should anything else go wrong, hardly anyone would ever know if they lived or died. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on the secret history of NASA. For decades, the American Space Agency has continued to push the boundaries of what's possible into the extraordinary. Unfortunately, this unprecedented access to the cosmos might also mean They've been working on covert and possibly unethical projects for decades. Last time, we explored NASA's creation during the United States space race with the Soviet Union. Then, we dove into how the agency's discoveries have inspired a public obsession with finding aliens. So today, we'll investigate one of the main conspiracy theories surrounding NASA, that the civilian agency may really know more about extraterrestrial life than it lets on. A possibility that's not so far off, given NASA's track record with secrecy during the Cold War. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help, because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. 
At the height of the Cold War in 1958, President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed the National Aeronautics and Space Act into law, which founded NASA. As we talked about last time, he made it a civilian agency dedicated to space missions to benefit science, not government or military objectives. Still, the U.S. used NASA to compete with the USSR's space program at every turn. The agency widely shared its heroic feats as moments of national pride, like orbiting and landing on the moon in the late 1960s. While NASA earned a valiant reputation publicly, it also began a darker, private pattern, withholding information from the American public. As we mentioned last time, NASA absorbed military activities related to space, such as the Navy's Vanguard project and the Army's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Exploring the universe became NASA's territory, which seemed odd when yet another separate space, defense, and intelligence agency was formed in secret. In 1961, the Defense Department and CIA created the National Reconnaissance Office, or NRO. And the NRO actually had similar goals to NASA, building, launching, and transmitting data from space satellites. But while Americans publicly celebrated NASA, the NRO was highly classified. Government officials weren't allowed to publicly discuss its existence anywhere. That's because NRO's main focus was spying on the Soviet Union. It remained separate from NASA, and each agency worked on its respective objectives until the U.S. tasked NASA with an ambitious goal. In 1961, President John F. Kennedy made a famous speech about how the U.S. needed to land on the moon before the Soviets. After all, the Soviets had already launched a satellite and a man into orbit first. So NASA and its scientists immediately got to work. First, the agency wanted to create maps to find the best, safest landing spot. By this time, NRO already had covertly launched four satellites equipped with an Eastman Kodak camera to take high-resolution USSR pictures. Naturally, NASA wanted to utilize that technology to observe the moon. But there was just one major problem. NASA and NRO couldn't openly work together. NASA was hailed as a peaceful, neutral agency. It wasn't supposed to be involved in military dealings. If word got out about NRO's existence and espionage, it could do irreparable damage to Soviet-American relations, which could mean turning the Cold War into a violent, active, and hot war. It took some creative maneuvering, but three years later in March of 1964, NASA and the NRO found a way to secretly join forces. The NRO issued a contract to NASA for $800,000. Given the NRO's highly classified status, any of its contracts remained confidential. As a result, the Hidden Alliance went by the codename Project Upward. The program granted NASA's Lunar Orbiter Satellites, the first model of American satellite to orbit the moon, permission to carry the NRO's Eastman Kodak camera to take high-resolution moon photos. Two years later, in August of 1966, the first spacecraft successfully launched 
and the camera took photos of potential lunar landing sites. Over the next year, NASA launched four more lunar orbiter satellites with similar cameras to capture more images and data. By 1967, NASA scientists had all the moon information they needed. Project Upward was canceled, and it seemed like the clandestine plan went off without a hitch. Until four years later, when the press began sniffing around. It's unclear how New York Times journalist Benjamin Wells found out about the office, but on January 22, 1971, he mentioned the NRO by name for the first time. In a single sentence, Wells went into remarkable detail about the group's goals and finances. Wells wrote that, quote, National Reconnaissance Office spends another $1 billion yearly flying reconnaissance airplanes and lofting or exploiting the satellites that constantly circle the Earth and photograph enemy terrain with incredible accuracy from 130 miles up. In light of the times, this was a startling revelation. After all, America was still in the Vietnam War and an energy crisis was looming. Spending a billion dollars on classified planes didn't look very good. The U.S. government likely braced for an avalanche of media scrutiny. But the mention hardly went noticed, likely because it was buried within a 20,000-word, five-part series on Nixon's foreign policy. The majority of Americans weren't reading through the Times with a fine-tooth comb, and the NRO was probably grateful. But the NRO did continue to pop up in the news afterward. Two years later, in 1973, articles about the group surfaced in the Christian Science Monitor and the Washington Post. And the NRO's existence didn't just intrigue the media, it also caught the attention of Congress. On October 12th, the political publication Congressional Quarterly reported that the U.S. Senate knew nothing about the NRO. Even the Senate Committee on Secret and Confidential Documents was in the dark, so those members began looking into the clandestine group. Around this time, NRO director until 1973, John McLucas, grew so concerned that he raised the question of declassifying the office. However, as an NRO memo from 1973 pointed out, there were serious trade-offs to revealing the group. One benefit officials listed was that even if NRO was revealed, the contents of its missions didn't have to be. Because those NRO missions were tied to the DOD and CIA, the specifics could stay secret. Surprisingly, the mission's actions weren't ultimately why the NRO was kept under wraps. As the memo also pointed out, the biggest disadvantage of going public was the increased scrutiny over the NRO's supposed billion-dollar budget from the news media, especially during the final years of the Vietnam War. So the NRO continued operating out of public view and soon sought NASA's help on a brand new project. Starting in 1969, NASA began developing reusable spacecraft called space shuttles. The program was called the Space Transportation System, or STS. Under the radar, the NRO joined the project. They wanted to use the new spacecraft to launch their spy satellites. 
According to Smithsonian Magazine, the NRO specifically asked NASA to make sure the shuttle's cargo space was large enough to hold its espionage equipment. NASA obliged. The agency built six space shuttle orbiters with this specification, including the Columbia and Atlantis. By 1981, the first STS test flight was launched, and 134 more followed. Like past missions, NASA released the results of these journeys to the public. Yet, just a year later in 1982, NASA's shuttles started taking secret missions with classified NRO cargo to space. NASA allegedly performed at least 10 covert assignments for the NRO over the next decade. Thanks to the office's military and intelligence connections, what happened on these expeditions remains deeply classified. We don't know a lot about them, or if they actually happened. It's extremely suspect, but the one mission we know the most about is STS-27, which launched the space shuttle Atlantis in December of 1988. The NRO ordered astronaut Mike Mullane and his team to bring a billion-dollar spy satellite into orbit. The program used two official names, Lacrosse and Onyx. According to Mullane's memoir, Riding Rockets, the secret mission was plagued with calamities. On the ground, NASA engineers realized a piece of equipment had damaged Atlantis's heat-shielding tiles shortly after liftoff. And yet, NASA told Mullane and the crew to carry on with the assignment like nothing was wrong. So they did. Mullane released the Onyx satellite into space using the robot arm. In his book, Mullane's description of the satellite's deployment ends there, but one very important rumor about it has persisted among skeptics and believers alike. Even Smithsonian Magazine, which is partially funded by the U.S. government, has published speculation about it. As the story goes, one of the Onyx antenna dishes apparently didn't open after launching. If the astronauts didn't do something, the billion-dollar satellite would just become space garbage. So supposedly, a crew member took an unofficial spacewalk to fix the apparatus. And that could be why, years later, there was a discrepancy in NASA's spacewalk records. However, when the STS-27 crew finally arrived home safely, they kept quiet about everything. Three years later, in 1991, the Soviet Union dissolved, the Cold War ended, and subsequently, in September of 1992, the U.S. finally declassified NRO. Even though the government gave no reason for the sudden declassification, at least now, more was out in the open. The clandestine flights, NASA using its Eastman Kodak camera, and details of the satellite espionage. Though for some reason, they didn't include what happened on all of those clandestine flights, including STS-27. And stranger still, a year later, Mullane and the Atlantis secret mission crew received National Intelligence Achievement Medals for their work. But, and this is a big one, they were only allowed to disclose certain facts about the flight. Otherwise, they claimed they just couldn't talk about it. We might never know what really happened on that secret flight. 
So far, NASA hasn't released more evidence of its clandestine activities, and the rest seems to be public speculation. But the NRO's and NASA's relationship was hidden for decades. It's only in recent years that the NRO has made once top secret documents publicly available on its website, undoubtedly confirming its NASA ties. Which begs the question, if NASA hid this major relationship with a top secret government office, what else has it been hiding? Coming up, a NASA employee uncovers a strange photograph of Mars. Now back to the story. During the Cold War, NASA hid its relationship with the Classified National Reconnaissance Office, or NRO. Together, they spied on the USSR, and even though the press quietly exposed the NRO in the early 1970s, it seemed like somehow officials in Washington diverted attention away from the office's existence. Yet by the mid-1970s, No one could deny that more eyes were on NASA than ever before, especially as it released transcripts from the Apollo 11 mission that landed Americans on the moon. As we talked about last time, the transcripts led to speculation that astronaut Buzz Aldrin saw an unidentified flying object, or UFO, near the moon. NASA and Aldrin denied these claims for decades, But that didn't stop alien enthusiasts from theorizing. Sometime after the transcripts were released, UFO fanatics suspected a two-minute segment might be missing, where the signal apparently dropped. It's unaccounted for in the transcript and the videotapes, which have also disappeared. Supposedly, all of the raw moon landing tapes ended up in the U.S. National Archives. But by 1984, Over 700 of the boxes were removed, which included other footage related to Apollo missions, according to a study from Australia's Parks Observatory. That's where NASA lost track of the Apollo 11 tapes. In 2009, NASA concluded their investigation into the missing tapes, stating they were more than likely erased and reused decades earlier for other purposes, but never confirmed recovery of the tapes. Many have claimed that those silent two minutes were on the missing tapes and served as proof that the Apollo 11 crew never went to the moon, a conspiracy theory we've explored back in our moon landing episodes. But there are other people who believe the omitted portion is actually proof of something far more interesting, that NASA encountered aliens on the moon and covered it up. In a 2020 article, the UK publication Express reported a theory from author David Childress, as told to the History Channel program Ancient Aliens, that this gap supposedly contained NASA communications about UFOs on the moon. Apparently, while in the lunar lander, Aldrin and Armstrong saw a flying saucer parked at a crater. Childress claimed NASA hid this information from the public. However, another author, Mike Barra, had a different idea about the contents of the missing two minutes. 
Express reported that Barra claimed the transcript itself can't accurately portray what Aldrin and Armstrong encountered on the lunar surface. Because that documentation and the audio broadcast to Americans at home was from the public radio channel, but the astronauts also had a private medical frequency, Barra claimed. He believes that 30 minutes into the lunar landing, the crew saw an alien spacecraft in a crater. Then, the astronauts immediately contacted NASA through the medical channel. They were supposedly extremely rattled and asked if they should proceed with the plan. They didn't even know if they could exit the vessel and walk onto the moon. Of course, they eventually did. Some 650 million people around the world saw Armstrong and Aldrin eventually walk on the lunar surface. And while it's clear the landing happened, there's certainly some gray area about what the world saw, and if that was only a snapshot of what Armstrong and Aldrin encountered on the moon. Many have been left to wonder, if NASA didn't tell the whole truth about the moon landing, then it might also be sitting on so much other information from voyages, especially ones to celestial bodies like Mars. In July of 1976, NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory scientist Toby Owen looked through photos from Viking 1, a satellite orbiting Mars. The spacecraft transmitted images of the red planet's surface. Soon, Owen noticed something odd, so he grabbed a magnifying glass. In the Mars region of Cydonia, he saw an elevation with two indents at the top, one in the middle and a line at the bottom. It looked like a face. NASA officials and the press called it the face of Mars. People couldn't stop talking about it. They wondered if aliens made the formation using their own markings or if it was something extraterrestrial itself. Naturally, the face came up during NASA's daily press briefing, which Dark Mission author Richard Hoagland attended while working as a science writer. According to Hoagland, a Viking satellite project scientist, Gerald Soffen, soon stepped up to the podium and spoke. Regarding the mysterious Mars formation, he said, quote, Isn't it peculiar what tricks of light and shadow can do? When we took another picture a few hours later, it all went away. It was just a trick, just the way the light fell on it. Hoagland didn't buy it. And he recalled that the other reporters in the room also remained skeptical. A trick of light seemed like a weak excuse, especially because NASA kept its eye on Cydonia for months after the debacle. In Dark Mission, Hoagland wrote that JPL scientists once considered Cydonia as a landing site for the Viking program. But after the face discovery, they decided the region was too rocky. Hoagland theorized that this happened because JPL officials wanted the spacecraft to avoid the face at all costs. Yet, NASA continued to secretly investigate the Mars formation. About a month later, in mid-August, the agency took two more high-resolution images of the face. Hoagland found this suspicious. Because after all, what good would pouring more resources into photographing Cydonia do when NASA should have been concentrating on the new landing site? To him, it had to mean something was up with Cydonia, 
and he was determined to find out what. In the 1980s, Hoagland organized two independent Mars research groups to closely examine the Viking images. At one point, he and the team noticed a pyramid-like formation near the face, as well as a mountain cluster. Soon, they determined it was an alien city. Hoagland and the investigators claimed to see a mountain formation that looked like a city square, a fortress, and a cliff. And each structure followed a certain mathematical pattern that had to be planned. They insisted it was a Martian city they called the Cydonia Complex. Throughout the 80s, Hoagland and his groups tried to bring the research to the broader scientific community. But any attempts to publish it in journals or present at conferences were outright rejected. And Hoagland claimed NASA did this to cover up any evidence of life on Mars. While it seemed like a far-fetched idea, NASA still made concerted efforts to debunk the face theories through the years. As technology advanced, the agency took pictures of Cydonia again in 1998, though the face was hidden in some haze. And in May of 2001, NASA declared it finally had its clearest photo of Cydonia yet, which revealed the face wasn't a face at all. It was a mesa, an isolated, flat-topped, raised area that is often found in the American Southwest and, apparently, Mars. NASA scientist Jim Garvin said in the press release, quote, The height of the face, its volume and aspect ratio, all of its dimensions, in fact, are similar to other mesas. It's not exotic in any way. Despite these denials, Hoagland eventually published his findings in books like Monuments of Mars in 1987 and Dark Mission in 2007. He spent most of the early 2000s explaining his beliefs on the Coast to Coast AM radio show. In light of his persistence to keep promoting his theory, scientists were less than thrilled. Many NASA officials dismissed Hoagland as a conspiracy theorist and pseudoscientists. One of his most vocal detractors was Phil Plate, who worked with NASA on the Hubble Space Telescope. Plate also ran Bad Astronomy, a blog where he discredited hoaxes and space misconceptions. In the early 2000s, he dedicated a whole section of his website to dismissing Hoagland's conjecture. In painstaking detail, Plate explained the face on Mars doesn't look like a real face, especially in the latest higher-resolution photos. He also claimed Hoagland's Cydonia complex math is inaccurate. Hoagland's idea certainly has its flaws, and it's probably one we can trust Phil Plate on. But it's important to point out that Hoagland's pursuit of what might have caused the face is rooted in a very valid concept. NASA has a pattern of hiding things from the public, only to continue investigating them quietly once media scrutiny dies down. In light of that, it does create some anxiety that we're not being told the whole truth. As we mentioned last time, questions about the possibility of aliens have plagued NASA as far back as the early 1970s. 
Back then, the agency tasked famed astrophysicist Carl Sagan to create a communication capsule for a potential alien meeting, which was included on the Voyager space probes in 1977. So, in a way, NASA's behavior suggests it might have already been anticipating extraterrestrial encounters for decades. And that could also mean, if the agency found something, they've kept it under wraps. Coming up, NASA refuses to acknowledge a deep space noise. Now, back to the story. Throughout the years, NASA has denied allegations that it hid evidence of alien life. But the agency has never explicitly ruled out the possibility of extraterrestrials existing in the universe. In fact, scientists started looking into this right after NASA formed in 1958. The following year, Cornell University physicists Philip Morrison and Giuseppe Cocconi published a study called Searching for Interstellar Communications. It examined the possible radio frequencies aliens could use to communicate with humans. Morrison and Cocconi determined if extraterrestrials contacted Earth via radio, it'd be a loud noise on the 1420 megahertz frequency. It's the same frequency as neutral hydrogen atoms, which are abundant in space. With that study, plus skepticism around the moon landing, interest in aliens exponentially increased in the 1960s and 1970s. And it wasn't just the American public. NASA itself wanted to know more, too. It began funding projects focused on the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, or SETI. In 1972, the agency released a study called Project Cyclops. The document detailed how radio telescopes could be the main tool to detect alien contact through radio and electromagnetic waves. So, SETI projects seemed to investigate this further. In the 1970s, NASA supported a SETI project using Ohio State University's massive radio telescope called Big Ear. It didn't look like the usual telescopes used to stare up into the night sky, though. Big Ear looked more like a 180,000-square-foot football field, covered in goalposts, with 100-foot-high reflectors on each end. Though NASA tasked Big Ear with searching for alien signals, there was just one problem. The initiative had very little funding, and the desire to keep it going quickly evaporated. After the U.S. beat the USSR to the moon, American enthusiasm for space superiority waned. The public became more concerned with the Vietnam War, and that was reflected in NASA's bottom line. The agency's budget plummeted from $5 billion at the height of the space race to $2.2 billion in 1974. NASA only gave the Ohio State SETI program $100,000 in funding, which was still a significant amount of money, but hardly met the multi-billion dollar price tag of space exploration. Luckily, OSU's SETI project had many willing volunteers, like OSU astronomy professor Jerry Eman. Every day, the project sent him Big Ear's records of deep space sounds, and he combed through, looking for something remarkable. 
Eamon checked the alphanumeric data of various frequencies and the reverberations, and finally, on August 15th, something happened that he found out of the ordinary while doing his read-through days later. At 10.16 p.m. on the 15th, a loud two-and-a-half-minute noise erupted on the 1420.4556 megahertz frequency. This was represented by a number that was eerily close to Morrison and Cocconi's prediction. The sound's alphanumeric code was 6EQUJ5, and the U caught Eamon's eye right away. According to NPR, numbers 0 through 9 and early alphabet letters like A and B represented low power, while later letters suggested high intensity. So, being near the end of the alphabet, U portrayed an extremely intense signal. It was 20 times louder than the other noises surrounding it. Eamon was amazed. He'd never seen anything like it. He circled the letters and numbers in red pen, writing, wow. From then on, everyone called it the wow signal. Eamon took his finding to SETI, and first, they searched for where it came from. SETI scientists traced the sound to the Sagittarius constellation, but there weren't any stars or planets there. It was just emptiness. So Eamon and the team wondered if perhaps the source had moved on from that spot. Second, they explored what made that transmission. They ruled out various sources, like satellites, the military, broadcast beams, and space junk. On top of that, astronomers soon realized that nearly everything in space made noise, from black hole collisions to gamma ray bursts. The wow signal could literally be anything, including extraterrestrials. Over the years, alien enthusiasts dissected and analyzed the 10.16 p.m. reading to no avail, while Eamon waited for a repeat occurrence. Another, perhaps longer, instance of the sound could help him pinpoint what it was and where it came from. His reasoning was that if this was made by something or someone out there in space, they'd probably do it again. Unfortunately, that day never came. By 1993, Congress canceled all of NASA's SETI funding. And while it may seem like a conspiracy to halt the search for aliens, NASA attributed the shutdown to the government's $255 billion budget deficit. But the program's shuttering still hasn't provided an answer for the wow signal. So decades later, people are still speculating about it. In recent years, a Florida professor has posed it might have been a comet, and a YouTube astronomer believed it came from a planet outside of the solar system. Eamon refused to lean one way or the other. NASA has rarely acknowledged the phenomenon. The agency only mentions the event on one page of its website, reading, quote, But alas, heard only once, the source of the wow signal could not be determined. It's certainly odd that NASA funded this SETI project, yet barely acknowledged a major development from it. And there's definitely a trend behind all of the incidents we talked about today. NASA has a habit of dismissing talk of extraterrestrial life while also quietly continuing to investigate it. 
Plus, NASA's dealings with the National Reconnaissance Office didn't exactly set the best precedent for transparency. For me, this conspiracy theory that NASA knows more about extraterrestrial life than it's disclosing is an eight. It's a harder sell for me. We don't have concrete proof that NASA has been hiding any proof of aliens. As we've seen so many times before, if the U.S. government is keeping something secret, it eventually gets declassified, like the NRO. For me, this theory is a five. I think NASA has its secrets, but most of what we've discussed is based on conjecture that reputable scientists have debunked, not concrete evidence. And because nothing has turned up yet, I think we should consider another factor in all this. Space discoveries are such a delicate international arena. Space encompasses warfare, junk, and even capitalism, as people start wanting to vacation in the cosmos. If NASA says something about extraterrestrials without absolute certainty, it'll set serious precedent that could change everything. Perhaps a reason for why NASA has kept any alien findings a secret can be found in a study dating back decades. In 1960, the famed research group, the Brookings Institution, released proposed studies on the implications of peaceful space activities for human affairs. One of the findings stated that if NASA determined extraterrestrials to be a great public threat, that disclosure could have an incredible impact about how humans perceive space travel. It might even have the power to tear society apart. However, it seems our perception has changed since this study. In 2017, NASA declared the giant space rock Oumuamua as the first object from another solar system to visit us. Then, in June of 2022, NASA took this belief a step further and launched a study on UFOs. So, even if NASA kept secrets and denied aliens' existence in the past, it seems like there could be momentum to officially reveal what's out there. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Mallory Cara, with writing assistance by A.P. Boland, edited by Ben Hanani and Mackenzie Moore, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Bruce Kotovich. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.